today. So, now I don't know if I'll get it in. Like, I was going to fertilize my lawn. But if I knew Jesus was returning tomorrow, probably not going to fertilize. What's that? Obviously not a sabbatarian. I'm a, it's going to rain tonight, and so economically, um, but I don't know if we'll get to that. So anyway, so that's a four instance. All right, what, what, what would you probably not do today? Not do laundry? Okay. Yeah. If you knew that Jesus was going to return tomorrow, probably not do laundry. Hey. I mean, everyone's wearing white robes, aren't they? No, so, yeah, so. (laughs) So then the other question is, what would you do? So would you do laundry, uh, knowing, you know. I would be a flaming evangelist to family. You start making calls? Okay. Um. Yeah, and so as you as you think, and we we can go more in depth on this, but um, I think you kind of get the idea. Like, if you knew Jesus was going to return, right, priorities would be shifted a little bit. Uh, some would be, you know, reduced, and then some would be increased in what you were thinking about. And so um, we're gonna we're gonna get to that eventually as we as we look at like kind of closing out Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two. So let me pray. And then we'll uh, dive into our study. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, just your kindness to us, uh, just your blessings that each day we get to, um, even though we get to celebrate fathers today and the impact on our lives or even an absence of a father and the impact that that had, um, that you are a perfect Heavenly Father. And we are thankful, Lord, that any deficiencies in our own father or any characteristics that are we admire and look up to uh, can be reflected in you. And uh, you are loving, you are kind, you are patient, you are gracious. And uh, Lord, we just praise you for that. Thank you for sending your son and uh, as doing a thing that would be tough for any father to do, um, allowing him to be sacrificed for the sake of uh, our salvation. And so help us, Lord, to truly grasp that, truly understand that, and truly, um, again, be have gratitude uh, for, um, for that. And again, help us to put all things in context as we talk about Scripture and look at Scripture today. And uh, Lord, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so last week, we, uh, we did our second study in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and just kind of understanding the day of the Lord. And so, you know, to the Thessalonians, Paul's writing and saying, just in case you were wondering if you missed it, before the Lord returns, right, that there's going to be this worldwide apostasy that results in a satanic-powered leader who opposes God, whom the world will worship and gather to fight, but will be no match for Christ and easily destroyed. And so, seems like that's it, right? What else have we got to talk about? Well, Paul kind of just, again, finishes this letter and explains a little bit more, and I want us to just have an understanding of, of that. And so let's look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, and just read uh, to verse 12 and just unpack a few other things. So he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Verse six, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Um, and so as we kind of like look through some of these things, um, we look through a lens and understanding uh, how like we, you know, make sense of what Paul's talking about. Um, and so when we see like this idea of the mystery of lawlessness and we see who has empowered this man of lawlessness or who even restrains him, um, you know, particularly when it comes to who is the restraining, you know, we saw that there Holy Spirit, and there was like eight or nine different different uh, commentators have uh, will empower this person when that time. Um, having to kind of read through Revelation, and then maybe even going back to the Book of Daniel and looking at some other other scripture and saying like, well, how do we understand all these things? But no matter what, you know, some of the details that we get kind of hung up on are not really the important uh, aspects of what we want to understand. Because in the end, Paul reveals some clear things about what all of this purpose would be accomplished. So if you want to turn to Revelation 12, we looked at it real quickly, but, uh, you know, last time, and we'll kind of flip back just for a couple of verses just to kind of understand. If you if you go ahead to Revelation, you know, Revelation, you can spend a lot more time and a lot more detail. And there's things that we skipped um, and multiple chapters that we skipped. And really, when we're looking at kind of the man of lawlessness, I'm focusing in on a couple of chapters and, and some of the events that, that have happened or really of their, how they're described. But how we understand these particular events um, is, you know, the, the the how and the why is is kind of important. And so I might not get into the details of that today, but I do want to talk about that when we at least get to Revelation um, next week. I think next week is when we're going to do that. So Revelation 12, we read verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Well, earlier in Scripture, we saw that the dragon was Satan, the devil. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. In verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser and our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. It's really interesting, like, even though you see this kind of like battle happen, that eventually like the, you know, Michael and his angels seems to be victorious, right? Or at least, you know, in that struggle, is it him that does it? But Satan is cast down to the earth, and usually we think about like what, what's going on on the earth, right? Because that's where we 
um, and all the things that are going to happen. And that's kind of even in the middle of this, you see, um, you know, that in verse 10, it's declared, right? The salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come, right? Even in the midst of like the turmoil and the destruction and all of the the things that are going to happen, right? This is before the man of lawlessness will come to power, or at least understood as that, is that the kingdom of God still reigns. And that's kind of the important part of what we're understanding. But this event is going to happen, which is going to kick off, you know, the events that Paul is going to talk it talks about in Second Thessalonians two. We've already looked at a lot of those, but I'm just going to highlight a couple verses. So if you if you keep your finger there in chapter twelve or we're going to look at thirteen in just a second and flip back to this to to chapter two of Second Thessalonians, um, what is the purpose of you know this this lawless one? So we see in kind of in verses nine what Revelation, you kind of understand a little bit more about what the man. Why does he? Why does he deceive? It's to lure the world to to worship him, and so there's this idea that you know, right now, if we even look at what's going on in our world today, everybody worships, you know, a myriad of different <laughs> different things, you know. Oh, their idolatry is kind of, this is this is almost like a a pulling together of like this is the one thing that everyone will be aligned to you know um, all nations will come to rally behind this person um, uh, by fear by threat um, you know miracle workers and things that are happening again that's a, the overall goal is to kind of pull everybody together to to do this. And so this is kind of this is judgment that is coming. Um, people are judged in various ways and judged on what they put their faith in. We'll see that again in just just a second as we we finish out this chapter or this uh, paragraph. <clears throat> but really that's what God is kind of alluding to is that this is this is again a hallmark that judgment is on its way. So if you flip back to kind of Revelations 13, and we've already read this, but, um, you know, again, and to the beast, right, to it, the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound would heal, and the whole world marveled as they followed the beast. Verse 4, chapter 13, Revelation, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Again, this pulling together of everybody to worship this beast. Uh, verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. And it exercises all the authority in the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. So this is kind of almost like another uh, religious you know, um, person who uh, is kind of the sidekick to the beast. It performs great signs, even making fire coming down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it allowed to work. 
work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to, uh, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Well, we can spend a whole lot of time kind of talking about that. And that's where a lot of people go, right, when you start kind of getting to Revelation. And so even, even with uh, John writing that, um, right, calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. And so... It leads to like, so then should we speculate and try to like identify who this beast is? Um, and there's different, you know, things that, like, what have you heard is, is this number for the beast? What's that? Okay, so Nero's name, right? And so if you have the title Caesar and Nero, um, if you take those letters, which are also represent numbers and you add them up, they add up to 666. And so... Uh, very interesting. You read something like that, and you're like, I mean, that's pretty compelling. Um, last week, we... Six is actually the number of the day of the human, I mean, man created, and three, uh, six of six is actually God, so man's going to be God. Yes, true, yeah. So s- seven is perfection, man is six, so one less than seven, but you also have man was created on the sixth day. And so you have those things. And so, yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of like overlapping. Well, it's probably this and it's probably that. Um, what else have you heard? Have you heard anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then if you continue reading Revelation, you'll see other specific events that happen. And um, this son, uh, you know, this woman that gives birth into the son and the dragon goes after the son. And so um, what that looks like and who that represents, uh, you know, likely Israel. Anyway, so you have, like, again, as you read further in, you get all these details. And you say, like, well, what is that? But um, I want us to kind of pause and say, like, well, what do we... What do we understand from all of these events? And we can go deeper, right? Uh, we can spend a lot of time looking at those things. Um, but where, you know, let's, let's just kind of give like the, the, the general like understanding of what Paul wants his readers to understand. How I would take that though, just to, to not avoid your question, um, is that yes, that 
we see in Job, when we looked at Job, right, that Satan was in, in the throne room of God and making accusation. Well, this is a time where, like, God is like, I'm not listening. You go. And because of that, the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan is now no longer divided between accusing before the throne of God and doing what he's going to do here spiritually, that there is going to now be a full orb focus on um, the earth and really trying to, like, do what he couldn't do when he was here, um, when he tried to um, tempt uh, Christ, right? And it was, you know, ineffective. Like, he's going to put all his now attention and force into that. Because really God's saying, like, that's where you're now going to to, um, have your attention. And Michael and the angels are no longer going to be, like, battling with them. It's going to be, you know, fully focused there. So what does that look like and where does that go? You know, um, so what I don't want us to do is, is again, to speculate too much. And there's other things like, you know, that we could, we could look at. Um, and so we'll just kind of keep, keep, uh, keep moving. But um, there's always, like, things that might pop up, again, in the news. And I kind of showed that a little bit. I tried to with the video that I showed you, but I had to kind of explain. Um, and there's, there's other ones that have been used in the past and even continually. Like, there's, have you ever heard, like, bar, barcodes being, like, the mark of the beast? Um, and there's compelling things if you look at, you're like, oh, that's really interesting. And so you can kind of then like get sucked into like, um, what that may be. And so, uh, I want us to then just think, well, what does Paul want the Thessalonians to think or to understand? And again, that this, this is going to happen for them. It's, it's in the future. Uh, so you haven't missed it. It's going to be unmistakable. And for us, It'll be unmistakable as well. We'll unpack this a little bit in just a second. But let's keep going back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so in 2 verse 10, Paul gives the reason that these people are persuaded to follow the beast. Because you would say like, I mean, even if, if you saw like these things happening, like my thoughts are, right? You see these things happening. Wouldn't you say... I think there's a book called the Bible that might have like, you know, Kirk Cameron was in a movie that I watched as a kid or I don't know, something like that. Like somebody who grew up in the church or would have been familiar with this that isn't following the Lord that is during this time and would say, hey, aren't, aren't these things happening? Like, so clearly you would say, well, these things are now written down and it would be evident. But there's a reason why people don't believe. And that's kind of where Paul at least like, you know, kind of tilts his head to, to understand that. And so what does he say? Why are, why are people persuaded to follow the beast? What does he say in verse 10? Yeah, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so um, Paul uses a word, right? So he, he then goes to like who helps, who, who aids in this like, uh, you know, this gathering together under this one world leader. He says that the power behind it is Satan, but who helps, you know, allow this to happen? Okay. Yeah, he says that, again, specifically, right? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. And so that idea is that he sends this... Um, 
the strong is this is this word and energy it's energeo which is energy where we get that this kind of working or power so something like he is involved in what's going on and delusion is error or wandering from the truth and so he he sends this strong delusion in order for them to believe in it now is that hard for us to like accept that or is it hard for you to accept that? Could be that tied up to Revelation when it says these people, and I think it's three and seven, that these people have never written the book of life before the foundation of the earth. So they had no hope. Is that the people who talked about the Well, eventually. Yeah, eventually, and we'll actually get to that that chapter. So we'll talk, we'll talk when we get to that about what that that specifically is talking about, because that's at a moment in particular in time. So is that who these people are it would seem like that that's could be who who he's talking about but um i guess is it hard to believe that god is involved in this worldwide turning for people to worship something that is anti him okay okay yeah, so there's there's scripture in the past that right um, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and when you actually look in uh, uh, when you look in Exodus at kind of some of the language, right? Pharaoh, there are times where a sign is done, and Pharaoh's like, "All right, I'm going to let you guys go," and then he hardens his heart. Sometimes. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so it's kind of a hard thing, right? You think, like, he seems like he was going to, like, let them go, and then God says, no, not yet. And so he had to become more involved in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, right, because so, so if we go back to that idea, right, that he says in verse 10, that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So a decision has already been made in their hearts, right, that they, they are not desiring the truth, they are des- not desiring salvation. And so at some point, though, God's patience has to come to an end. Otherwise, right, this idea of like it would just be continual, like it, like we would live on for eternity, and there would be no final judgment of sin. There would also be no final salvation of mankind. Right? Jesus' death on the cross would be um, for nothing if there was no time of judgment. And so, at some point, there has to be you know a stop to it, right? Um, it's like I think <laughs> you know. At some point when I was telling my sons who had his friends over to, uh, all right, I'm going to give you a few minutes to finish your video game. And so five minutes, all right, five minutes passes and they're still playing. And you go up and you're like, hey, guys, thought we were going to finish up. They're like, all right, we're almost done. And I was like, okay, how long is it going to take you to finish? Right? Five minutes. I was like, all right, five minutes. Okay, you guys are done? Five minutes happens. And then so then I go and then I just turn the video game off. And they're like, yeah. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, should have 
They should have obeyed the first time, right? But that's at some point, you have to just like cut it off and say, like, well, we're, we're done. Otherwise, they would have played forever. Or they would have had to go to the bathroom and eat or something. So, um, so God is involved in this, right? So sometimes it's hard to believe like, that God would send this strong delusion. Like, it's almost like people are neutral. Like, I don't know. It could be God or it could be like my own devices. And God then like sent this strong delusion. And it's like, well, I guess this, this way it was better. But no, they were already kind of headed down. God is just firmly seating them into there. Anchoring them into the fact that, like, instead of following um, the desires of their own heart, they're going to follow this one leader. And it's going to be like, you know, I mean, Jesus kind of made it clear, right, when he said you can either worship, you can't worship both God and what? Mammon or money. You know, you've got kind of these two different, like, systems. And so he's got to boil it down into two. You're worshiping God or you're not. The not worshiping God can take many forms. You know, it could take sports, it could take, you know, your job, it could take money, it could take a God of your own making or a God of, you know, some world system of Satan's making. And so that, again, is now going to be, like, coalesced into one because there's going to be this one final battle, like Jesus versus everyone else who's going to be judged. And that's just how God is setting it up. He's making, he's pointing people to this day of history, this culmination, things that he had promised in the Old Testament, and now we'll come to justice. Neither judgment won't come on its own, but salvation and neither will come on its own. And so God is directing will be unmistakable. And it's not just God's doing, right? This is the result of desiring anything but God's way. This desire for not the truth, that's the illusion that people already had, but he's sending a kind of uh, with his own power and own energy, this delusion that they'll follow. And this delusion, that word, again, I said it could be translated error. That's the same word that he uses in Romans one twenty seven, where he says, Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That error, their error is there for their delusion. And so... There are already, when we looked at Romans 1, like consequences that God is allowing them and turning them over to the desires of their hearts, which goes further and further into unrighteousness. And so God is now just aiding that, not making them do it, but again, pushing them towards a direction that they will, again, be united as one and know that the dividing line is you're either in this camp or you're in this other camp. You're either for God or you're against God, and they'll be happy to say, I'm against God. You know, usually when you talk to people, they kind of like couch or just, you know, like, oh, I'm not, not against God. Everyone can kind of do their thing, but it like really it's you're either on one side of the fence or the other. You can't sit on the fence at all, and God is a, uh, aiding that. And so you just kind of think about this idea, like when I, when I think about, you know, Romans 1, I think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we read like the events that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, you're like, how could this happen? How could this happen in a society? But that's what will happen when people follow their own devices and when they love, you know, their own selves and not the truth of God. And so as we kind of finish this section, you know, and even when we talk about eschatology, like several questions kind of come out of this. I mean, there's lots of questions that will, will happen. And the first one is usually about timing. So when will this happen, right? If I said, hey, you know, you're going on a vacation this summer. To, if I said that to my kids, like they may want to know, like, well, when, right? 
And so we're like that too, always kind of like thinking like, well, when is this going to happen? And so Jesus, you know, the disciples were that way as well. We've looked at those verses where, you know, Jesus said, no one will know the hour. You know, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we looked at that as well. He said that, um, you know, that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, echoing what Jesus also said in Matthew 24. But these events will take months to happen, um, even years to accomplish. I mean, if, if you take it as Daniel 7 and what Revelation says, that this week is actually seven years, um, and that even the man of lawlessness will take up you know, the seat in the temple for this 42-month period or three and a half years, half of that seven years, um, that there's going to be time that is elapsing, that it'll come as a thief in the night. It'll be like that will be occurring um, that will lead up to it. It's not just one day of the Lord. It's the day as in like a period of the Lord. And so sometimes we want to speculate, right? You know, um, and we want to kind of know like, well, when is this going to happen? And so why, why, do we, why do we want to know? Exactly, right? <laughs> we want to know because we feel like it might then help us change our behavior. Um, you know, when your vacation is will depend on when you're going to pack, right? And some of you know, like, you're... you're, you're you're packing over the week before, you're packing the night before, and some of you are packing that morning, right? Um, we, are, we are procrastinators in life, like all of us, we're on a spectrum, right? Some of us are just better at it than others. Um, spiritually so, we will procrastinate as well. And so, Jesus doesn't want, to be, want us to be there. You know, Paul and the, the other gospel, the epistle writers don't want us to be there. And so we feel like if we had enough information, then like, oh, now we'll get serious. But God wants us to be serious now. And so, um, so, so he gives us a little bit of information to know, but also not too much information where we'll want to take matters into our own hands. It was almost like, you remember when King Saul was told, like, uh, you know, um, there's going to be the sacrifice that's going to happen you know, but just kind of, you know, wait for that to happen. And Saul got impatient. And so he did the sacrifice and Samuel came and he's like, what's going on? And he was like, well, we decided to like, you know, the sacrifice needed to be done. So we decided to do it. And Samuel was like, well, you weren't authorized to do it. And that's really then when God took like his mantle of authority away from Saul. And then Samuel ended up anointing David. So you have this kind of event where, like, we want to take things into our own hands. And so it's kind of this balance that, you know, this, this when and the events that lead up to it, like, what we're given and what we're not given kind of feed into that. So that's kind of the first question is the, the, the when is this going to happen? And there's always, like, these, you know, people uh, that have speculated when they're going to happen or add up the years and come up with a number. Um, and so far they haven't been right. Uh, but... There's always going to be people who are going to want to desire to do that. But both Jesus and even Paul here is saying, oh, that time will come when it will come. But if you're worried that you missed it, it's not going to come subtly. And so don't worry about that. And the other, the other question that comes up too is like, will we experience it? So there's this time of like great distress, this time of tribulation, this time of like, you know, 
uh, turmoil on the earth, death and pestilence and all these things. And we want to say, like, are we going to are we going to experience that? Why do you think we ask that question? Because we don't want to. (laughs) And so sometimes that's within our heart, right? You know, so Paul starts out this this chapter by reminding us about being gathered together, right? And so there is this gathering that the Lord will return for for us. But are we going to experience this suffering? Because we often want the rewards without the suffering. Um, And if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, when he talks about what that will look like, that gathering... In verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's kind of the important part. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's kind of a, a similar verse, um, not in so much detail, but in 1 Corinthians 15, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 when we looked at the resurrection, In verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So Paul even says, like, at that moment, right, when this trumpet sounds, we shall be changed, and that's when we will have bodies that will be like Christ. We will be glorified, and we'll get to that in just a second. So these verses that kind of are talking about, you know, this being caught up together is known as the rapture. And again, we could spend time looking at like what that looks like. But there's, there's different views, right, of, of what we'll experience, this time of tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. So some would say that there's a pre-tribulation, meaning that the rapture happens before all of the tribulation occurs. And so the church is spared from, um, you know, from from experiencing a lot of those events. I think the weight that goes behind that is you see in Revelation, the church is talked about in the first three chapters, but from chapters 4 through like 19, when all the issues of tribulation are talked about, the church is not mentioned once. And so, why is that? That's kind of an argument from silence, but it's also a strong argument from silence. And so, there are other verses as well, and again, you can go deeper into what that looks like. Um, but... There's, there's a lot of evidence to say that the church will not experience the, the tribulation. There's also some who believe in a mid-tribulation, that halfway through that 42 months before the man of lawlessness, then the church is pulled out, and then they won't experience the events that happen there. So there'll be some of the tribulation, but not you know, the ones that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians. And then some say, experience all the tribulation, and then Christ returns and grabs his church, And then Christ comes back with his church for that kind of final battle that we looked at last week. And so if you want the energy and the time and devotion to kind of look at all those, in the end, you kind of step back and say, does it matter for us? And so in some sense, right, 
we're given these events, right, to not just be passive. And I'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to uh, something that's also a little thorny of the idea of the millennium, which we'll talk about again eventually. Um, But how does that change how we live today? Because that's really what God wants us to be focused on. How are we living today? And what is our understanding of some of these events? And even if we have everything kind of parsed out and organized exactly, when we finally have true knowledge, when we're in, you know, in heaven, we'll be like, well, I got that wrong, right? So we, we are, because we're, we're, we're faulty. I mean, someone will have it right, you know, but the chance of, of all of our doctrine being fully clear, we're going to have things that are wrong. And so Paul kind of turns there as he finishes out his ch- So again, settle their minds that they didn't miss it. And then he gives them kind of this, this little bit of appeal in verse 13, back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Verse 14, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope, a good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish with them um, in every good work and word. So how would you say, you know, again, Paul's writing a second letter to kind of address some things about these future events that are happening. If you told someone a couple things times and they're still not getting it, how might you respond? What's that? I sometimes tell them that I'll pray for them. Okay, sometimes I tell them that you'll pray for them. Well, I mean, they, they oftentimes will just kind of give that blank stare and um, they'll, they'll follow by, I don't understand your logic, I'm not sure what you're Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think better than, than some, you know, I would say sometimes if I've told, you know, especially I think of like, again, as a parent wearing my, my parent hat, told you this a couple times, you know, how do you not get it, right? But then I have to remind myself like, oh, you're only 10, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, because sometimes you can get frustrated and impatient, but that's not where Paul goes, right? He kind of takes like, you know, your, your line, right? Because then he, he responds again, you know, he's, He's, he's written two letters, and the bulk of both of these letters has been kind of on these issues. But he says that he is thankful for them. Like, I just want to let you know that I'm thankful that, you know, for who you are and that you've been saved. Because they're brothers and sisters. They're beloved by the Lord. They are in the family of God. And so, even if they're not getting it, he's thankful, right? And I think sometimes, like, we as believers can can butt heads even when it comes to like some of these issues of doctrine and be like, how do you not see it? It's clear. Like it's clear when you add up the numbers, right? That that's Caesar. Uh, or if somebody else is like, how do you not see it? It's Barack Obama is like the antichrist, right? You know, or leading to that video or whatever it is um, that people say like, it's clear. You know, Paul knows because he's given direct revelation from the Lord. We in understanding scripture just need to be confident in ourselves, but also we need to be, patient with others who may not see it as we see it. Again, Paul has greater understanding than us, so we're not even this role that Paul is, but 
Paul's response to them is not frustration, right? It's thankfulness. In the end, we'll all find out together when we are in the presence of the Lord. We're all in the family of God. And so as an encouragement, what does Paul remind them of? What does he, what does he talk about? What does he point them to? Yeah. And he kind of basically just, he, he tells them again of the gospel, right? Their gospel calling. He says, first, you've been chosen, right? They've been selected as the first fruits to be saved, right? That they're a prized possession and deemed worthy of salvation. You're not just like part of all of, you know, all of the fruits. You are the first fruits. You are the ones that get to know first about God's salvation. He even then talks about how they are saved. He says, they are saved through kind of this faith and obedience, right? He tells them they're saved by the sanctification by the Spirit, right? It is God's working that, that aids in their sanctification, that they're able to carry out anything that God desires that they can do as well, and their belief in the truth. And so it is the Spirit who works combined with their understanding of the truth of this world. And then he reminds them of their future reward, right? That they will obtain the glory of our Lord, right? And so what is that glory of our Lord? Well, Paul again had mentioned that in you know, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that they will be changed from perishable to imperishable, and then all of the other things that are, you know, are wrapped up in what that future glory is. And so then he goes and he gives a reminder of what the gospel can produce. What does he say in, in verse 15? If we understand the gospel and we understand it clearly, then what does that lead, uh, lead them to do? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we've talked about that the last few weeks about how our faith is strengthened and it can be strengthened. And that faith in the eternal uh, in eternal life, that we may know that we have salvation. And so that reminder of the gospel through the sanctification of the Spirit daily allows us to fully understand and know as we continue to walk through this world what the gospel is and what the end result of the gospel is as well. That we can hold to the traditions. He talks about that, either spoken of by or by this letter. So this letter, he's just even saying that this letter itself is authoritative in the things that I say. And then finally, what is that result in verses 16 and 17? What's that? Hope. Now, what, what, what word does he repeat a couple times? What's that? Comfort, yeah. So he says, he says this idea, right, that you can be comforted, right? The eternal comfort In good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That they're going through difficulty. They're not going through the difficulty that will come when the Lord returns. But they're going through difficulty. And the gospel that we've taught to you when we were there with you and the time that we spent with you should provide comfort in knowing that there is hope in the future and in the work that you do now. And so I asked earlier, you know, if we knew when it would happen, right, when the Lord would come, how would that change our behavior? And so for them, how did it change their behavior? So I want us to look real quick, and then we'll, we'll finish this out. Is if you go to chapter 3, 
what was happening in their midst. Like Paul needs to address this issue. Um, in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Just, just think, like, it's probably less than a year, you know, maybe a handful of months when Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians, and he's already, like, talking to them about issues of idleness. He says, verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we may not be a burden to you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ, do their work quietly to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Right? Sometimes misinterpreting Scripture can have an effect on how we live today. Right? And we see this in, in their understanding. So when I say, like, sometimes when it comes to issues about, like, how, things, how events are going to happen they can become almost you know, sometimes doctrinal debates that in the end don't functionally matter much about how we live today. But there are other issues in the big picture that it does affect how we live. And so the gospel gives us hope, right? If there is no consequence to our actions, right, we could just live with disregard. And if there was, you know, and so for them, there are consequences and there are eternal ones. But for us, we know that there is a hope, right? And there is eternal hope. And since we don't know when Christ will return, how do we live today? We continue to do the work that we've been given and we don't work, we weary in doing good. Because doing good, right, obviously isn't easy, <laughs> right? There is some weariness to it. But in the end... It's worth it. So we kind of take all these things and we say, we are to live today with an eye on tomorrow. And when we get a little bit further, like when we get to Revelation, I'll, I'll go a little bit more on kind of like how uh, we can interpret Scripture kind of differently within different um, groups within the church or different believers in different churches. Uh, but for now, kind of understanding this man of lawlessness and how this happens, we'll just kind of have a big picture and broad view of what that looks like. But again, it's important for us to understand some of these things, to know there will be a time of judgment, and there will be a time that history comes to an end, but we're not in it yet, and because we're not in it yet, we continue to do the work that God has given us to do. All right, any questions or comments?